Kaka. We're back. Master James. Master Joseph. Top of the morning. Top of the morning. Back again. I'm keeping my <clears throat> Invisalign in. Awesome. All right. Got um, two months left. Discipline. In, indeed. In, and I'm keeping them <laughs> in uh, partially because it's something that I want to chat about with you. Yeah. Which is, I think maybe a year ago or so we said, uh, or I said Invisalign reminds me a lot of Vedanta. Yeah. Uh, it's um, a constraint, mm -hmm. healthy constraint to get to, <laughs> to get uh, my teeth and my bite to where ultimately it's freeing because my bite before and the, uh, just the shape of one of my incisors, I think is what it's mm -hmm. called. Mm -hmm was causing just a really uncomfortable bite mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh and like recessing my jaw so it was causing issues mm. and the fix for it wasn't like run free right yeah let it free it was yeah. no no add some yeah. constraint to it sure and it reminded me or we chatted about it just the day that i thought about it Mm -hmm. And I think I've thought about that every day since. Mm -hmm. Every time I'm putting them in, I, I nearly. And and it's something that you know we. I was an offhand comment before we chat about it for thirty seconds. But there's been a lot of deep reflection on this <laughs> um, since then. And one of the things that I wanted to chat with you is the contrast between our cultural notions of what freedom looks like, mm -hmm. what freedom is. Mm -hmm what we uh, yearn for and what thousands of years of philosophy associates with freedom. Yep. Mm -hmm. Could you, and could we start the conversation with what are the things that Vedanta associates with freedom just in the practical sense of your day or your life? Um, or what, what Swami might talk about, the, the quote that comes to mind is, uh, and, and I, this is actually not strangely related to freedom, mm -hmm. but uh, this morning in one of his lectures, he was talking about the surfer is free mm -hmm. because he wants the ups and downs. Yeah, he either duck dives or rides and sports with it, he says. Sports with it, right. Yeah. He, he maybe not once but he doesn't mind he knows that they're both needed yeah and that's a strange association with freedom of yeah um the surfing makes sense but it's certainly culturally not what people associate with freedom yes um, culturally right so freedom is is non-bondage by desire or preferences Kama, Raga, Duesha, the three evils that are mm. binding us in the 16th chapter, if not mistaken, of the Gita. He calls it the three, uh, the three evils, the three enemies. What are they again? Kama, desire, Raga, which is preference, like, and Duesha, dislike. So, desire preferences either for or against this is what binds us very practically speaking very limit very uh it's a very practical thing mm -hmm. if you are bound by um 
a particular culture, for example, if you are, if we are desiring and preferring only Southern California culture, you know, <laughs> we're setting ourselves that, that that's a bondage or only Texas culture or only India culture, just speaking to the ones we know, right? Only, only Finnish culture. I, I don't know wherever anybody is, you know, like I have a strong desire for a particular environment just to make it super an external thing. Um, then I am bound by that. Not by the environment. I'm bound by my own strong desire for, preference for something, aversion against something, you know. So so our cultural notion of freedom of sitting under the, the palm trees with the Mai Tais from uh, right, one right. of our prior episodes. Yeah. Free of work. You yeah. retired. Yeah, yeah, no. That's that's bondage almost. It can be. It depends on if your mind is free of desire and preference and aversion. Mm. Then it's bondage. You can be my tying on a hammock in the, between two palm trees on a beach and be free. Or you can be um, doing that and be extremely bound because your desires are not being met. Your preferences are not being met. You are, maybe you don't like the Mai Tais. <laughs> I mean, like, if you're really specific. So, um, this is all, uh, opposed to the opposite, which is gratitude. Oh, another, a, a sense of fullness, a sense of satisfaction, a sense of, uh, gratefulness following an understanding of fullness of purnam of our fullness which is what vedanta is all about is only putting us in touch with that reality you know he says in the second mantra of bhajagovindam uh, create in your mind a thought of reality not the not the craving not the cravings um Manasivi Trishnam. Give up the give up the Trishna. The Trishna is the bondage. Trishna means craving. Manasivi Trishnam. Mm. He says, create in your mind a thought of reality. Give up that Manasivi Trishnam. That that craving in the mind. So the thought of reality, as you think, so you become, you contemplate upon the self shining in the cave of the Buddhi. You know, uh, you recognize yourself as that fullness, that infinite, unbounded, uh, self-cognizant, self-existing consciousness every day. You wake and, and sit in with that, as it were, in that. Then your mind isn't um, looking to be filled thereafter. It's satisfied it's grateful as it were you you have a feeling of gratitude aside from just uh, the that that's the highest right the highest thing is to recognize my infinite consciousness like okay i've <laughs> i've got everything yeah you know um and uh that leads to the mind not rushing out into the world that's the absolute sort of superpower that Vedanta offers even relatively we can just kind of get our heads out of the sand and look around and 
um, count our blessings, you know, and realize what we've got already. That's freedom. The freedom from desire is freedom. Freedom from preferences is freedom. A person can travel and travel and wander and, and be everywhere, but be bound, not feel, be actually free. A person's free who doesn't uh, need any particular environment, any particular place, any particular people, who is at home anywhere with anyone. Uh, no preferences. There's a quality called aniketa, which means homeless. Actually means without a home <laughs> in the Gita. Yeah, I love that. That's a great concept. You may have a, you may have 10 homes. You may have Jay-Z and Beyonce's new home in Malibu and still be aniketa. You know right. what I mean? Um, you may have a $200 million home on the bluff in the Paradise Cove and still be aniketa internally. Mm-hmm. You don't, you're, you're not anchored anywhere. You're good. You, you may live in one house your whole life and still have that quality. So like everything in Vedanta, it's an internal, external freedom just has no meaning. Some of the, there are very free people who have all the money and power and they have American passports and maybe they have a double passport. They're the super freest on the planet. You know, yeah, a lot of people don't even have a passport to leave their country. Lots and lots of people. We take that totally for granted, just on a practical sense, you know. They literally can't go to 80% of the countries in the world because they don't have the right passport. You may have all the passport, all the money, all the power, all the everything, but your mind is not ever um, satisfied with where you are or where you're going. So it's an internal discipline of freedom. As As you're chatting, there are a few things that come to mind with the, and and I mean this from the as you're talking from the practical side of the associations with freedom. Now, a handful of years into Vedantic study, they're so different from my prior associations with freedom mm-hmm. and my let's say my. Mm. you know 20s although it's certainly not a 20s thing i mean you were got into vedanta at 19 so it's it's not even like an age thing but it was my my uh progression of associating and hearing it philosophically but then seeing the application in my life and i find it's just uh i i continually reflect on how different these associations are from the cultural associations of fast car Mm. that's freedom Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. just blazing down the road Mm -hmm. and and a quote from swami this morning that kind of just hit me and and resurfaced the resurfaced these conversations or these uh internal reflections was that um he was talking about someone uh that built their business and he said um to paraphrase that uh he wouldn't be able to handle it if things fell apart yes Yes. And and that's where he talked about the surfer. The surfer's free. Yes, yes, because yes. He has no preference of the ups and downs. Right. And practically speaking, they might have preferences. Yes. Um, yes. As you said before, yeah. someone might have a preference for the temperature of, of yeah. dried nuts that are served. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're not bound by they're not bound by it. Yeah. They do not there is no care. Right. There's no of any range. Yeah. yeah. Of yeah. The, you know whatever's delivered to them yeah but specifically to this practical and um, 
transcendent aspect of this, the businessman cannot handle right. anything on a downslope. Right. The surfer, the whole point is for them to see the up so that they can ride the down. Sure, sure, sure. Bound by these limitations. You don't have to be bound by these limitations. Even even birth and death, you know, it can liberate you. Like so, so many are bound by the fear of death, bound by attachment to this particular life. Whereas, um, you know, um, on one of your trips to India, you should visit Varanasi, which is the oldest um, existing town in the world. Kashi, Banaris, same thing, right? Kashi, Banaris, these are all names for this town that's been there forever. I mean, thousands and thousands of years, just iterations built on top. And one amazing thing is now there's hotels that are built in old, like uh, Maharaja's homes there. So these, these kings, these families, they would build these palaces on the banks of the Ganges there, on the Ganga, so that that's where they'll go live the last few years of their life. <laughs> it's like fully embracing it. It's such an incredible culture. You know, it's like, it's not like let's build a beach house on, you know, next to Jay-Z in Malibu. It's like, okay, at that stage of life, I understand I will be exiting this world. So I'm, so now you can go book, they're like these cool boutique hotels in these refurbished, renovated old Maharaja's death houses. I don't know. Yeah. What, I don't know what else to call them, man, but like, they're like, that's my death palace. <laughs> like, and I've got my life palace now and you know, death hotel. Yeah. God willing, I, I lived long enough. I'm going to go die there because to die in, in Varanasi is considered extremely sacred. Some people take it literally. Like if I die there, I get moksha. Mm. Yeah. I remember Ram Das talking about a story, <clears throat> his first tri trip there in the sixties. And this is a, uh, formerly known as Richard Alpert, a Harvard trained psychologist and mm. just, you know, three piece suit wearing multiple car owning, uh, high-flying kind of harvard professor mm -hmm. and then goes down this this spiritual track and you know ends up changing his name but um but he talks about in one of his lectures he talks about it, traveling to to uh, benari's varanasi and and his first like hour there gets off of the bus and he's so distraught mm -hmm. by seeing people on death's door mm -hmm. Um, you know, disfigurement, cancer, tumors, mm. 90 year olds, mm. um, everywhere, seeing death everywhere. Yeah. And he said he was so petrified for it. Yeah. He um, got into his hotel room and physically hid under the bed. <laughs> yeah. It's no joke. This is a 30, 36 year old oh, hid yeah. under the bed because oh, yeah. he was so yeah. scared shitless by it. It's it's wild, yeah. You go float down the river and you will see bodies being burned at every ghat, which is the burning cremation ground. As you go, there's like a dozen of them, just fires in the morning, you know, and the body parts, you'll see everything. You'll see people looking, sitting in their windows in death houses, looking out, watching bodies burn, reflecting on it, you know. Now, look, I don't know if those people are liberated or not from death, but 
we're so bound by even the thought of death right so long ahead of the death you know rather than i'm not saying death is a great thing at all i'm just saying like it doesn't have to bind us you know and um you can be liberated from that by sheer understanding of what it is and even uh even birth you know like uh some of the books say you know if you are a person who remains in the thought of reality who remains in awareness of the self of themselves as consciousness there's for them there is no more lying in mother's womb mm. he describes it that way there's no more of having to be bound in in a womb in a sense individualization so that too it's a uh, it's liberation internally from birth from death from individualization <clears throat> from doership from that persistent obnoxious beginningless all pervasive sense that i'm doing something i'm the doer the gita talks about it the upanishads talk about it viveka chudamani talks about it that persistent and beginningless sense that I am the agent. This is massive bondage mm. from, from the point of view of true freedom. True freedom is to recognize, as the Gita says, the gunas are moving with the gunas. The matter is dealing with matter. So you see James going to work and doing his things and interacting with people and building his companies and raising his kids and doing everything he does. Like that. Okay, James is doing what he's doing. Yeah, I still think about your articulation a while back where you said we should cultivate the sense of observation that you're the neighbor living three blocks away. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How like far are you from the neighbor three blocks away? Yeah, yeah like it's... So their life. Right. It's his life. It's, oh, he, uh, I don't know. You shouldn't, shouldn't have a sixth beer. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have... You know, that, uh, that third scoop, yeah, three nights in a row of ice yeah. cream. Oh, I don't think you should be yeah. saying that to your boss. <laughs> yeah. That's wouldn't have that react. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it's a really healthy articulation of three blocks away. It's not your brother. The, it's not your cousin. It's not the person right next door where you have a preference for how quiet or loud they are. Totally. It's truly so far away. So far away, but yeah. close enough to where... You're like, hey, this is a community member, and yeah. I want, uh, yeah. uh, I want, I wish them well. Yeah, you look after them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If right. they have a flat tire, you'll help them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> totally. The uh, and that gratitude aspect is, all right. One of my favorite quotes um, of yours is in our first episode of gratitude and desire cannot coexist. Right. Um, that 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 reframing if desire is the and and endless preference. If that is bondage, then reframing the mind. Obviously, you always say, we say that culturally all the time, framing the mind or mindset, but we never, mm. Vedanta is the only philosophy I've ever come across that, that explicitly articulates, well, what do you set the mind with? Mm. What do you frame the mind with? Mm. And, and um, obviously, if you listen to any of our episodes, and it's uh, mind, body, and intellect are our three equipments to navigate the world. And the two inner equipments being the mind and the the intellect. Yeah. Um, so 
body, mind, intellect, if you want to think of it in kind of a hierarchy. Yes. So the intellect jumps in and says, okay, let's reframe this, this mind, this bound mind towards gratitude. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's a bit like Invisalign of just like, let's move things to where yeah. it's more flush with the universe, just how things work, um, it seems. The, oh, you're, you're reflecting on that. Yeah, well, like I mean, it's not that you. It's not like that. Like there's gratitude. There's like a, and I'm, you're not saying that, but it's not like there's a shelf where you go pick up gratitude mm -hmm. and like inject it. Gratitude is an emotion in the mind, a profound one. It is in the mind. It's an emotion that arises from understanding, mm. like that. You know, so. Um, If Jay wakes up in a month in his new house in Malibu <laughs> from a dream and he's like, has a dream that he's homeless, you know, on the streets and no one will give him any change, you know? And uh, for a minute he's like, oh my God. The moment he was like, actually, I'm, I'm in William Bell's old $200 million house and the bluff, I'm good. Suddenly he's at peace. Gratitude. It's a feeling. Mm. that should i hope come flooding in for him <laughs> yeah, i hope you know i have that feeling often when i'm having some type of yeah nightmare and then you wake up you you're wake like up. Oh, you're like okay. yeah i'm not yeah, a beggar not, on the street or right. whatever there's not nothing being crazy chased by yeah whatever <laughs> yeah so it's like that we can see that like the moment knowledge comes in the moment knowledge dawns uh, into what it is that we have the what it is that we is the that it opens the space for the gratitude to come in. So the exercise is like in a way we can call it an effect gratitude, you know, the, um, the effort is in understanding knowledge. So if, when we say how, how to liberate it, how to reframe the mind, as you're saying is to apply the intellect and point it towards recognition of our fullness absolutely and even relatively i can go on about you know 50 percent of america makes minimum wage just starting with that like they go to work work hard and make you know 12 dollars. if they're working at a union in a in a hotel they make 15 16 50 percent of this country you know what i mean which is like lunch or breakfast in venice you get a breakfast sandwich and an orange juice at $17. Speaking from direct experience an hour ago. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, okay, well, things could be. And then you go to the country. You go to, I mean, you go to the world. You go to India, see how people, you, even relatively, if you start understanding what, what you have. And then even then, okay, if you, even if you live in like the deepest slum in Bombay near the airport, but you have feet that work. Mm -hmm. and your eyes work and your hands work you know and you've got people that care about you i mean there's all of us everybody has got so much to be grateful for even relatively it's just a matter of recognizing it which is why i don't you know people have this gratitude journal thing and i, I think it's effective but uh they may not know what is exactly happening that's all what is exactly happening is the intellect which is like the banks of the river is is driving the mind towards a, a higher understanding of 
the fullness that is already at hand. The, the, that's what it does. And so the intellect can register and be like, okay, there's a lot of greatness here. There's a lot of good here. I've, I've benefited so much. Then you experience your fullness. You've experienced the gratitude for that. That emotion comes in, which makes it very, um, uh, which is the opposite of negativity. Yeah, which is the opposite of of um, negative emotions, and that's what we mean. We say desire and gratitude can't coexist. Also, desire and its negative manifestations cannot exist either. If there's gratitude, so How so well, desire manifests. If it's interrupted, it becomes anger, or or you get something you fear losing it. If you have a powerful mm-hmm. desire. Or someone else gets the wave and you're jealous or whatever. There's all these negative emotions of desire which mm-hmm. harass us and stress us and cause us problems. All of that is rooted out by recognition of our fullness and the, the, the flood of gratitude and, and, uh, and positive emotion that you get through this practice. So they're both going in that upward direction. It comes to, but the spearhead is knowledge. Then that's the key thing to 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 harp on. One of the two wild things about uh, having kids and, and seeing them grow up. One was with our second one, Marley, mm. your goddaughter. She, um, we had, we for maybe a year, she'd use a pacifier. Mm. Talk about bondage. Mm-hmm. You have. The whole family searching for pacifiers yeah. three, four times a day. Wow. And just to get away from the unpleasantness of crying and screaming. And it was her doctor that saw her teeth coming in all uh, disformed uh. and said, is she using pacifier? Okay, you got to stop. Stopped. Her teeth got back into the right Amazing. formation within two weeks. Wow. And within about a week, she no longer needed the pacifier. My niece, she's been on a pacifier for three years now, sucks her thumb. Yeah. And it is seemingly freedom, but it is bondage when quite literally we're running around the house looking for a pacifier. Yeah. Or uh, this, the fact that, okay, that pacifier is going to disfigure the mouth where she's going to be in an orthodontic you know, mouthpiece when mm. she's 13 because mm. of the bridge in the mouth, like mm. it gets too elevated and mm. it ends up causing all of these, mm. uh, these like ongoing issues all wow. from a pacifier. Wow. Yeah. And we've only realized this, I think, um, in the last few years of how detrimental it is on an ongoing basis. So that seeking freedom, that aversion from the unpleasantness, and that's just the physical science. That's not the emotional science of being able to deal with. Mm. Um, that stress or ride the wave, mm-hmm. so to speak. But then there's quite literally, I mean, Cheney had the, the mouthpiece that like went outside the mouth. Really? For, yeah, like a year oh, and a wow, half. Wow, I remember those, yeah. A year and a half because uh, the, the parents couldn't handle it. It took us a week for us, for Marley to adjust. She Painful week. Painful week, but a week versus mm-hmm. a year and a half of much more pain of that orthodontic, you know, helmet. And then also... Um, emotionally just being able to just be like oh yeah 
Let me regulate myself instead of some external thing. Yeah. I constantly also reflect on what are my pacifiers that that one messed up my teeth and bite to begin with. But uh, more metaphorically, of yeah. what are the things that I'm reaching for that are causing? I know my 20s and probably still today, it's still reaching for caffeine mm-hmm. instead of just letting my body go through mm-hmm. what I in my 20s certainly. As you know, drinking six to seven cups of coffee a day. Wild. Yeah. Um, the the other thing that's been really wild to see is our other daughter, um, the youngest one, Jolie. She, we were trying to get her to sleep through the night, and before that, we were waking up two times middle of the night. You know, it causes sluggishness during the day, um, and and it was three nights of letting her cry, cry it out, or we didn't go in. It sounds so elementary to verbalize it now, mm. but before then, when you don't know, and it's all these unknowns, you don't know how long they're gonna cry for. Mm. So <laughs> minute seven, you might as well think it's gonna be 70 minutes. Mm. Mm. Um, and you don't know what damage you think it could be doing to them of them not feeling like, you know, there's someone there to emotionally support them. All yeah. these mm-hmm. misconceptions that are in our heads. As parents, and then we did three nights of letting her self-soothe, is what it's called. Three nights, now she sleeps through the night, sleeps 12 hours. Perfect. And we were going from- 12 hours. Yeah, 12 hours. Gosh. And we're going from, (laughs) uh, you know, kind of collective insanity Mm. in the house to only three days Mm -hmm. of discomfort Mm -hmm. to get to actual freedom. Mm -hmm. And so these different examples, the pacifier, Mesaline, the uh, sleep training. It's, I'd l- love to just ask you what are the things that come to gratitude over kind of unbridled desire? Um, what are the things that, that you think about or that someone new to this philosophy mm. might look at and say, that doesn't look like freedom? Mm-hmm. But then with understanding, yeah, you get on the other side and you realize no the pacifier is not freedom mm. um the no structure mm-hmm. uh to uh, approach to sleep training is not freedom right um what are the things that come to mind where to an outsider they think like oh that's restraint yeah but to you you're like no this is freedom yeah so formlessness uh through form which is actually more mm. more buddhist you know um then it is really Vedantic. It all goes back to Vedanta. But finding formlessness through form. Uh, so the usual suspects, you know, waking up early in the morning, uh, having regular patterns of lifestyle, um, having uh, uh, eating food, not eating between meals, um, liberates you from... Uh, all kinds of food problems, like no snacking. Um, How come? It's just constant digestion or something? Yeah, just to, first of all, the mind, the, the, it all goes back to training the mind, but the mind has a natural tendency to graze. That's what the senses do, right? The eyes want to graze on new mm-hmm. sights. The ears want to graze on sounds. The nose on smells. The mouth wants to graze on tastes. So anytime we pass something, we want to have a bite, see what that is, taste it. It's a natural thing. 
The mind is naturally doing that all the time, wanting to do that all the time. So we will be bound by that desire unless we restrain it and discipline it. And then once you have that discipline, I just, I don't eat between meals. That's it. Like, it doesn't matter what we put in front right now. Like, I'm not interested, right? This is the attitude. It's not mealtime. And then at mealtime you eat. Then you are liberated from that tendency. You're free. That is, it becomes freedom. Which, in fact, any person experiences at any given moment. Take a smoker, for example. Um... You know, in full candor, I used to really enjoy my cigarettes as a teenager, me and my buddies. Yeah, when I was living in South Africa. Yeah, you too, huh? Yeah. Oh, man. So when I was like, you know, 17, 18, whatever, we used to shout out to Tasty Diner in Bethesda, Maryland. Me and the boys, you know, loved our, our cigarettes and our chests and everything and whatever. And uh, like truly appreciated it. I, I really enjoyed cigarettes. I wasn't trying to be cool. I actually really liked it. I liked the morning mm. coffee with a cigarette. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking oh, about. Yeah. So good. A little it's chemical so cocktail. It was so, 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 so nice. Morning, yeah. Neotropic in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, of course, went to the ashram and got into all this discipline and there's no cigarettes anymore. It's over. But when a smoker knows that when you want something you're agitated you're bound by that desire you can't think about anything else you got to get up from your desk take the elevator down to the ground floor of your building in new york and stand outside in the cold and have your cigarette you can't board a 12-hour flight without freaking out without freaking out and you're left in a state temporarily of freedom from that desire that's the point it, you, you go down to get free of the desire. You were free, and then a desire emerged, and then you had to go do something to get back to the original freedom. Mm. So in a microcosm, it's happening all the time. Cigarettes are just a really good example, right? So it's absurd. When you actually analyze the cycle of desire, desire and pursuing desires is absurd because you're okay, then you're not okay, and then you do all this stuff and effort and time and energy to get back to your original okayness. So I remember like, you know, I don't know, late twenties or something. I was just walking somewhere and the cigarettes are long gone from my life. I mean, I'd been ashram for years and years and I, someone was smoking and I remember smelling it. And I still don't mind the smell. Like I still like, it's like a nice smell to me, but I was noticing absolutely absolutely zero interest in contacting that myself and it just it was like it was there have been quite a few major desires like this but that was like wow you know this is freedom to to see to see something like socrates said i went to this to the shop i was amazed i went to the shops and i i saw all the things i can do without Mm. this is freedom now you may have it you may for some reason do something or contact something or eat something, but to be completely internally free of the desire. Um, that's the, that's the, that's what we're talking about. And uh, to do that, that's where it takes a little bit of effort. That's where like a little abstinence is required and little knowledge. You got to step away from it and apply knowledge, uh, create in your mind the desire for freedom itself. And, 
you know, remove your pacifier, as, as it said, mm-hmm. and suffer a little bit. You may lose a few nights of sleep yourself for a few things, if some things are really... But once you get past that hurdle of desire, uh, it's a positive, permanent state of, of pleasure, of happiness, of satisfaction. Mm. That's not dependent on anything. Mm. And that's the crazy rub. I mean, that's the thing that you're just satisfied for no reason. You're just happy for no cause. You are not, you know, you make plans. You have aims and ambitions and goals in any given day. You stop a person who's like that and ask them, what what would you like to achieve? They'll have answers for you. But their mind isn't in the future. They're satisfied at any given moment. You know, Swami says, if if you're not satisfied with what you have, you'll never be satisfied. Mm-hmm. If you're not satisfied in the current moment, it's never coming. He says, don't let your present happiness be dependent upon future acquisitions. He says that. But how to do that? Be it by not having that attachment to those things. These things may come. So the attitude will be like, uh, the attitude is, is like... Um, it would be nice if that happens. You make a plan and you aim for something. You say, okay, that, that would be great if that comes to pass. Uh, but you're driven back into the present, into that presence of truth. And a healthy dose of understanding of, I've thought these things would be nice in the past and they, they were so temporary. Yeah. So even if it does happen, yeah. It's, it's not still going to solve that much. It's not going to solve what's really going on internally. Yeah, and it, and it does. Uh, obviously, the the background, uh, the subtext to this. Each one of these is what you were saying earlier of understanding. All of it. Knowledge is as essential for liberation as fire is for cooking. Mm. It's everything. Knowledge is it. Is it? Yeah. Speaking of the one of the things that I think about it. That I look at and I now I don't even reflect on it. It's just so that is liberation is waking up every morning at the same time. And mm-hmm. it was a sleep doctor. But I, I think about this in that Vedantic lens of yeah. my association with freedom is is waking up for the day for my energy is waking up every morning at the same time. And sleep doctor told me two things that and I wrote about this in in uh, Beyond Coffee and talk about. Talk about a cycle where you're just trying to get back to the same place. We develop a tolerance to caffeine in about 30 days. So my parents that have been drinking the same two cups of coffee every morning for 50 years, they've been in pure maintenance mode. Yeah. Getting back to that and that withdrawal is the strongest in the morning or if you drink in the morning, Mm. two cups, and that means by definition, your distance from it, your separation from it will be strongest that next morning. They've been pure maintenance mode for 49 years and 11 months. Psychologically, mentally, they think, no, no, this is bringing me happiness, but it's just getting them back. To zero. To that zero, that Neutralization. Base, that neutraliz- neutralized base level that they had 30 days prior, but yeah. for 30 days had this feeling of, mm. wow, this mm. is giving me a lot of energy, and it was, mm. but then hits that neutralization yeah. where then they're just getting back to it and avoiding that painful withdrawal, which takes about 12 days to, to mm-hmm. withdraw from. But 
the other aspect that uh, of kind of daily energy that I write about within the book is around uh, sleep and waking up every morning at the same time. She told me two things, and these are pract- very practical. One was, if you ever need to reset your 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 24-hour circadian rhythm, take 300 micrograms of melatonin hmm. for travelers out there that you know are mm-hmm. traveling and getting back to a uh, home base and you're off or you're getting to a new place for uh, a brief stint or an extended one 300 micrograms not milligrams micrograms of mm. melatonin um and you take it about three hours before before you go to sleep and she said the reason it's important that it's only micrograms and three hours before you go to sleep is you want to kickstart your body's own natural production you don't want to take milligrams because those which is 10 times more than a microgram the, the uh typical um amount dosage that's sold on like Amazon or at CVS would be three or five milligrams. And she said that'll replace your natural production of melatonin. So your body won't produce it. You'll become dependent on it. Mm. And that understanding flipped everything. I was was like, Mm. wow, now I know that there's one way to trigger kind of a natural production. It's tiny amount triggers natural production. But without that understanding, that dosage, the action could be the same. It's a pill mm. taken with a glass of water, mm. but without that understanding, completely wrecking my my own natural production or my own yeah, cycle. Yeah, right. Good point. And the other thing that she said, which ties uh, maybe even more uh, aptly to this, is waking up every morning at the same time sets your body's twenty-four hour circadian rhythm. And so, waking, I obviously we all, many of us think freedom is like being able to sleep in mm. on the weekends. And I, once I had the understanding, she was like, no, that will completely destroy your 24-hour rhythm, biological, yeah. biochemical r- rhythm. For sure. To wake you up, to make you sleepy. Um, she was like, eight days. Just stick to eight days. By mm-hmm. day nine, you won't need an alarm clock, and you'll have phenomenal energy throughout the day. Mm. And holy shit, she was right. Yeah. And it was that restraint. Yes. That now I look at sleeping in as... It's the enemy to my day. It, mm. it really will wreck my energy because yeah. my clock will be off. Yeah, yeah, it is an enemy. But the, these these things only through understanding, but also through I think the Vedantic backdrop, it becomes like, oh, of course it's that way. Mm-hmm. So standardization. Yeah, tell us. Tell I mean, us. It's more. another big one. You know, I mean, like you're always in your black Patagonia thing in your blue jeans, and that's what you wear. So you're liberated from the what to put on for each day swamiji is all about standardization you can give him any type of pen and people do people give him rare collector edition mont blancs and all kinds of, and he gives them away <laughs> he re-gifts them <laughs> people and, but because he writes with cross pens that's his example that's when, when he gave, that's he decided this type of pen i like so you're liberated from thinking about maybe I should do it this way, maybe I should do it that way, maybe I should buy this, maybe I should mm-hmm. have that. So standardization at first, especially if you have a desire to have a wide variety of things, standardization can be uh, an effort. But in the long run, it is a settling thing in life. Mm-hmm. And... um In that settledness of life, there is also the 
uh, capacity to go deep. You know, if we're only on the surface, constantly shopping around, changing around everything in our life, then we'll stay on the surface. So trying to standardize a lot of the things, the basic things that we do, what our activities are, what our clothes are, what our food is, what our living situation is, what our partner is, that's a big one, you know, um, etc. Mm. Who our guru is, what our spiritual path is, all of these standardize certain things. It allows that in that settled situation, you can go deep or you could say your mind is free to fly high. If we're just constantly, uh, like Jack Kerouac talks about the heat and horror of the road. You know, hmm. it's a, he, a guy is famous for like the great American <laughs> road trip book on the road, you know, but he said he called, he talked about the heat and horror of the road. What did he mean by that? Just that it's, it's chaotic. It's, it's, uh, um, it's, uh, distracting. It's, it's extroverted. It makes it, it makes your, all your explorations external. Maybe I can get this. Maybe I can get that. Maybe I can do this. Maybe I can do that. But if everything's standardized and you're doing the same thing every day, this basically the same pattern of life at least, your system is able to dive deeper um, or, or fly higher, however you, whichever way you want to understand it. Yeah, as you're talking, the, the experience that I've had with that for sure is, is going wide with with. Eastern philosophy, Western philosophy for years and years, listening to, as we've chatted about, thousands of hours of Alan Watts. Mm. Um, heard every Ram Dass lecture out there. Mm. But these brilliant, in many ways, um, eclectic minds, mm -hmm. after a while, and I'm so thankful for their exploratory work because it's mm. it what gives it's what's in many ways given the map for the different places to explore then it was uh, just a matter of time before it's like okay i've gone wide for a decade i really want to go deep yeah and going deep it is it is especially the systematic approach which is a, probably another good example mm -hmm. of looks like restraint but it is freedom on the other side of the sleep training for Three nights. It's that systematic approach mm. to spiritual philosophy of the the online lectures, um, the way that each book is written, mm -hmm. the sequence of reading the books. Mm. If you uh, you know you could buy the complete works now, and it just that sequence, each page, each sentence has a system to it that you don't people don't even need to know that it's happening. Mm -hmm. I certainly didn't have an appreciation before, mm. but to your point of flying higher, man, it's like it's it is. It's ridiculous how effortless things become, mm. and it is like the waking up every morning at the same time. You tiny bit of effort, yeah, and and then day nineteen, day one hundred ninety nine, the whole day is just sandbox open. it's open it's yeah. a playground yeah um yeah so uh the freedom 
to kind of like encapsulate it really is thought space. And I use that phrase to, to describe wealth also. When people ask me, what is it to be rich? A rich person to me is one that has thought space. Period. And uh, I mean, I'm, I'm riffing on uh, one of Swamiji's concepts that he's saying basically like, if you have more assets than you do desires, you're rich. Whether you have $10 or $10 billion, if your assets are more than your desires, you're rich. Mm-hmm. If your assets are less than your desires, you're poor. It doesn't, you can have $10 billion and be poor mm-hmm. by that definition, you know. So in the same way, it applies to freedom. I mean, freedom, wealth, these are all the same words. Truth, you know, it's all the same. Freedom is a state of thought space, a state of not, uh, of the mind not being involuntarily dragged out into the world. So when you are, when you have set certain things, you may move every six months. I'm not saying live in one place. But once you get to your new place, like an Indian on the plains, you know, set your teepee up. This is where the fire is. This is where the hunting grounds are. Now I sit, you know. For a second there, I was imagining an Indian on an airplane. Oh. Um, <laughs> yeah. 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 Yes, yeah. Yeah, on the plains of America, yes. Mm-hmm. Whatever they called it then. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> that's funny, funny visual it is like, hilarious send it, where, did, where would they put that where would they where put the that? teepee on the it was like oh metaphor <laughs> setting up their seat <laughs> so, but you get what I'm saying yeah. like that that freedom of the mind comes from uh, standardizing of of making the mind uh, familiar of 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 basically settling the mind so that it can be driven Higher or deeper, whichever, they're the same thing, whichever way you want to say it. Uh, Which, you know, Swami often says that, you know, um, maybe perhaps one of the great parts of India is that it's just so easy to live there for thousands of years. He says, you just throw seeds in the ground and something grows. It It is ridiculous how a... Western or European, Northern European, can't grow anything. Everything's so scarce, so cold. I was just reading a study uh, yesterday that said that we're built for tropical uh, environments. Amen. We are not built for uh, Amen. You know, 40 degree I'm weather, much it. less you know, 10, you 10 degree weather. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. right. And, uh, and how that causes uh, this mindset of scarcity or this, this outward looking hunting. Right you know, all that limited food, conquering, you know, all that out, out, outwardness. What philosophies did those cultures produce? And what philosophies did those people produce who just could throw some rice next to them on the ground? Mm. It's fascinating. And why has India been holding that? I'm not saying it comes down to just that, but it's a factor. Things are, basic things are taken care of. You know, there's a basic standardized thing. You know, uh, of of survival is is dealt with. So then the mind is free. So we can create those conditions in our own mind by choosing. You know, okay. After eight o'clock, I don't do electronics. I'm not saying I do that. Whatever. Um, but it's an example. Mm-hmm. I eat at these times a day. This is roughly what I eat. It doesn't mean if someone invites me to. Uh, 
someplace on Montana Avenue for lunch, I can't go. You know, what I mean, it's not like that. It's not a rigidness. But generally speaking, left to a person's own devices, they have their their stable way of functioning, mm. which allows for conversations like this to happen. If we're both too out of our minds, uh, you're chasing your stuff. I'm chasing my. How are we going to sit and have like a decent thought? It doesn't work, you know. So, um, it, a lot of it's privilege. A lot of it is full gratitude, the opportunity to do these kind of things. Philosophy is a luxury in that way, a very, very high luxury. Maybe the highest, if you think about it. Thought space. Thought space. But you can create it. It's not just like, well, I, I, I have to work a, a day, a day job or whatever. It's not. One of my first first person I taught, uh, I don't know if he's the first person I, I did any like teaching to, with, for, I don't know what to say, was this guy Henry, and I, if any chance he listens, it'd be amazing, but I'd, I, who knows if he'd see it. But he used to run into me, and we'd run into each other at this coffee shop in 2002 in St. Louis. He would always be there in the afternoon, and um, I would always be coming back from my university courses that I was wrapping up after the ashram. I'd stop by in the afternoon and get a cup of tea, and uh, he saw me reading this book a few days, and he says, hey, what's that book? Oh, it's Vedanta Treatise. What's, what's Vedanta? You know, No, Vedanta. Oh, well, tell me about it. And so I talked to him about it. He said, can I get this book? I said, yeah, yeah, I think I have some copies. Brought him one. And uh, we ended up meeting there every day for like that whole year that I was there. And we read the whole book together, mm. me and Henry. Henry was a line worker. I don't know what he does now, but he was a line worker at the Anheuser-Busch factory in St. Louis, you know, bottling beer. So I just don't want it to seem like it's, uh, you know, only when you've got time to, you know, mm. sit by the beach in Southern California on a weekday that you can do it. He was a standardized guy. He was at the coffee shop at the same time every day. He was disciplined. He was dressed neat. He wore the same few things all the time. He was doing all this stuff. I'm just saying this to like, yeah, no, you, like, and I know for you, you've lived under the, I think the actual, uh, statistical poverty line for years and years in America. <laughs> and well. it's, and it's never, Maybe stopped I'm, you. Yeah, it hasn't stopped me, but you know, we the the whole system of supporting teachers is also there in a, in a different way. There's a lot that we get. That's true. Supporting That's true. us in kind, but but yeah, it doesn't take much to live to live it a standardized life. In fact, standardized li living requires you to you'll have less bills to pay, mm. so you don't have to worry about making so much money. Swami says all the time, you know. Don't make bills. <laughs> mm. He said, how can you be unemployed? How can you not have a full-time job? How can you not like do all these? Don't make bills. You don't have to pay them. Well, it's, it, it, it seems absurd, but it's, no, it's literally it, true. Yeah. So true. And I mean, it, as you're talking about, you know, what's happened or what are the philosophies, the worldviews, just even the mundane worldviews of, mm. of the West and perhaps overly simplistic, but I think directionally accurate terms versus the East. The West, we've had a couple world wars. Mm. We conventionally say we talk about our countries as being wealthy, but we're countries of debt. Huge debt. Insane amounts of debt. Yeah. Household debt, 
the debt ceiling in the U.S. has yeah. been pushed back 75 times, just continues. Sure. And, and really smart people like uh, Chamath uh, Palapataya from yep. Facebook fame and, and, uh, and VC, you know, he's, he's just saying casually, like, there's no other end of the story. They have to just keep pushing it back. Yeah. It's too much to pay. Yeah. So it's just going to be pushed back. And what's f funny is the average American would say, well, how can an Eastern philosophy be helpful, or right, or accurate, mm -hmm. or timeless if we have so much wealth in, in the U.S.? And, <laughs> and the actual correction is it's, not, it's debt. It's a it, lot of debt. It's a lot of debt, yeah. From the average household, yeah. um, having more debt now than than any time in history, to wow. the national debt being higher than any time in history, and and there's a correlation to how much war, how much uh, mental energy goes towards we need to conquer more, more externally, yeah, to pay for this desire yeah. that yeah has outstripped our our means, yeah, versus saying like this is my what I need for a day and I'm satisfied and the real adventure is within, mm. you know, the real exploration is, is to go within and that culture has it more than this one uh, for whatever reasons. It's just like that. So um, let's see where they end up. Let's see where the, <laughs> it's interesting what's going on in the world today. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it at least, for ourselves, if we standardize, if we rein in, if we discipline, then this thought space, this freedom opens up uh, so that we can stretch to our full capacity as human beings. You know, human beings are not meant only to be breadwinning creatures. We are not animals, you know? Mm -hmm. So, if we feed our, ourselves with that deeper knowledge, we can do what we're actually here to do. And that capacity, that availability to do that, that's freedom, and it ends up in the highest absolute freedom. Yeah, well, and, and uh, man, I, we could talk forever on this, um, mm. but the, yeah, to round it out, it, so that it doesn't sound like there's a, this, um, romantic idealization of the east it's swami says all the time that americans have the western world mm. has this this determination yes there's a good quality and, in it yeah and this uh this orientation towards action that is phenomenal that mm -hmm. um dynamism the dynamism yeah. that if you can combine it uh and he'll just flat out say in india doesn't have that dynamism right uh that the west has uh, those are his words. So, mm. uh, but the, but if you can combine them, that dynamism, where the means do surpass the desires, that is, like you said, that's the definition of prosperity. And if your understanding can surpass the conflict, the seeming conflict, the 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 conflict internally, if I don't want to go to the gym, mm. or waking up every morning for eight days, I mm. love my saturday sleep-ins or man but i love my five cups of coffee or mm. my 10 cigarettes i mean the it's it's endless of 
can you rein it into where the understanding mm-hmm. supersedes the, the that inner conflict or outer conflict? That's peace. So, thank you, Joseph. Any Not other right. any other parting words on? No, no. It's uh, action and peace. These two, we can have them. You're right. We can have action and peace. It's possible through the study of Vedanta. The surfer riding through the tube of incalculable amounts of force yes all around them and it's, it's totally sta- stable totally steady it's for the surfer it's yeah the ideal thank you Joji as right, always great bye Woo. that episode was fantastic and if you are digging yoga for your intellect and want to introduce this philosophy to your coworkers and your team? Well, Joseph and I are down to come visit basically an in-person YFYI. Come visit with you and your team. In the same way that you might invite a yoga instructor for a team building event, we're willing to come to your office and talk to your team as well. We can do it over Zoom as well. It is, uh, it's whatever makes sense, but uh, we're even down to do it in person. And that is just in line with the mission of making this philosophy available and accessible to all those that seek it. Joseph and I would love to come talk with you and your team about Yoga for Your Intellect. And that really comes from my perspective of running businesses for the last 15 years and just knowing, man, it was about 10 years ago, I was running a 50-person company, led to a trip to the ER, I was drinking seven cups of coffee a day to try to stay on top of everything, Um, trip to the ER with a heart condition. Needless to say, it was a very, very stressful, extremely stressful time in life. And that business ultimately failed. And 10 years later, I sit here and and get to have these conversations with with Joseph while running two companies and, and a venture fund. Each day just feels like it's a hot knife through butter. I have not had a single day of stress in the last six, seven years of building multiple companies and and multiple venture funds. It's truly remarkable, and I know that it's not me or the businesses that are different than 10 years ago, but it's my approach to each day and quite literally to the start to the day because every day starts with this philosophy for me. And we want to share it with your team. For me, it feels like an obligation of sorts and a loud siren saying that teams and companies around the globe need to hear this. So if you're interested, email us at, this is the key thing, email us at yoga for your intellect at gmail.com. That's yoga for your intellect at gmail.com. Use the email address in the show notes and we would love to come chat with you and your team. 